I'm your host, Kurt Sandig, and welcome to Paranormal Almanac. That's right, I'm your host, Kurt Sandvig, and on this week's edition of Paranormal Almanac... Well, I'm not going to do my usual opening, because last episode was such a downer for me. I realize I've already gotten some great feedback from you guys. You really seem to like the The Earth is Not Flat episode. But for me, that was such a downer. I feel like I need a good, real, paranormal episode to make up for it. But... Again, I, I really hope you liked the Flat Earth episode, and if you didn't, just know this episode has zero Flat Earths and a whole lot of ghosts in it. But first, we have shoutouts. One more time, there's a special shout-out to Joshua on his upcoming birthday, so happy birthday, Joshua. You are cool, my friend. Now, let's do the... Now let's get to the shout-out shout-outs. Shout-outs to Vincente, Veronica, Troy... Travis, Amber, Amy, Angie, Autumn, Seth, Carolyn, Carolyn, Chuck, Dan, Daniel, David, Dill, Edgar, Aaron, Fabian, Harley, Heidi, J. Mark, Jade, Jeff T., Jenny, Jim, Joe, Joshua, Juliana, Kenny, Kira, Kyle, Lash, Laura, Laura Rutho, Lauren, hi Lauren, Lawrence, Maggie, hey Maggie, Michaela, Manning, Martin, Matt, Megan, Melissa, Nanashi, Nick, Pablo, Rosa, Sarah, Sarah, Shelly, Suzanne, Tosh, and Todd, Jamie, and Elijah Hendrickson. Again, this show would not be made without the people I just named. If you want to be like them, if you want to support the show, head on over to patreon.com slash paranormalalmanac for as little as a dollar a month, you get access to extra episodes and other fun little things, hanging out with me. I think I figured out how to do Google Live or Google Chat or YouTube Live or something to that effect, where I, actually, where I can actually face-to-face -face with you guys, and that's what I'm really looking forward to. But for as little as a dollar a day, nope, little as a dollar a month, you too can help support this show, and I appreciate all the support I get. You sharing it with your friends and family, thank you so much. You writing a review on Facebook and iTunes and everywhere else, Thank you so much. Any support that you guys give to the show is absolutely incredible. It far exceeds my wildest dreams for this show, so thank you so, so much. All right, with that, let's get over to Paranormal News. We actually have quite a few. Um, we actually have quite a few stories for this week's paranormal news. I took a few off of the crap episode. I'm not going to talk about anymore. The episode that shall not be named, and moved them over to here because, well, frankly, I wanted them attached to an episode I really liked. The first one was just brought up to me today by a friend of mine, Brian, who is awesome. He's a listener as well, um, and he's like, "Hey, man, did you ever hear this?" And I had no idea. No, it was wasn't on my radar at all. It's called Illuminating the Shadow People. The story goes, you're walking down an empty street alone, when suddenly you have the eerie feeling that someone's following you. Is your mind playing tricks on you? Maybe so. But according to a new study, when a specific region of the brain called the left temporoparietal junction, it's called TPJ, temporoparietal, temporoparietal junction. Whenever that is stimulated, the left one of that is stimulated, it can create the illusion of a shadow person. Now they say that given that such experiences are often heightened in psychotic disorders such as schizophrenia and paranoia, and even in those who believe they've been abducted by aliens, the results could lead to a better understanding of these neurological conditions. The finding emerged by accident because neurologist Olaf Blanc of the Brain Mind Institute in Lausanne, Switzerland, and his colleagues 
were attempting to identify the source of epileptic seizures in a 23-year-old woman. They applied a mild current through surgical implanted electrodes to various regions of her brain. To various regions of her brain, not much happened until the researcher stimulated the woman's left TPJ, located roughly above the left ear. Now suddenly she reported the feeling of the presence of a mystery person behind her, a motionless and speechless shadow that imitated her body postures and actions. Quote unquote, he lay beneath her when she laid down, sat beside her, I'm sorry, sat behind her when she sat down, and attempted to take a test card from her when she tried to participate in a language exercise. So it's an interesting step into the shadow person phenomena. And it might be, it might shed light on how the brain perceives itself. So the brain uses sensory information such as, such as visual and other clues, which indicate the position of the body parts relative to each other and everything else. Now the TPJ is known to put some of these cues together. When this function is disrupted, the brain perceives two bodies instead of one and mistakes that second for that of a stranger. Now again, this is just a preliminary possibility into shadow people because as you know when someone sees a shadow person they aren't mimicking them they aren't right behind them they aren't laying below them or sitting behind them they aren't mimicking everything that person's doing they're their own independent entity but i like that they're using science to look at the possibilities of paranormal things like alien abductions and shadow people i think it's really interesting i hope that there's more that'll come out later on and they figure out what the hell's going on in the brain. The next story is, Loch Ness Monster, not a monster, might be real according to a new scientific study. A major scientific study of the Loch Ness has sensationally discovered Nessie might be real. Experts traveled the length of the famous loch on research vessel Deep Scan, taking water samples from three different depths. The scientists collected DNA left by all creatures from their skin, scales, feathers, furs, and feces. I actually talked about this, um this scientific study, whatever you want to call it, on a previous Paranormal Almanac, uh, Paranormal News. But, uh, so we got some results. So the DNA samples were then sent to labs in New Zealand, Australia, Denmark, and France to be analyzed for the final findings. Professor Neil Gemmel, or Gemmel, of the University of Otago, New Zealand, Otago? I don't know, I'm sorry people, and his team who carried out the project have now concluded their research. The professor who did the samples said the results were, quote, surprising. He says they tested the data against most of the main theories about the Loch Ness monster, about Nessie. Professor Gemmel, or Gemmel says, while the full details will, will be revealed at a later stage, one of the theories might be correct. The two main theories about the monster are it's a long-necked pleosaur that somehow survived the period when dinosaurs became extinct, or it's a very large sturgeon or giant catfish. He said he hopes to announce the full findings of the study in Scotland next month, but would not confirm which hypothesis might be right. He says, is there anything deeply mysterious? Hmm, it depends what you believe. Is there anything startling? There are a few things that are a bit surprising. What we'll have achieved is what we set out to do, which is to document the biodiversity of the Loch Ness in June of 2018 in some level of detail. We tested each one of the main monster hypotheses and three of them, we can probably say, aren't right, but one of them might be. So again, hopefully, he'll let us know that, yeah, there is something really odd that shouldn't be there that they're finding in there. Up next in paranormal news, have you seen the Mothman? Students' posters urge Chicagoans to call in monster sightings, and her phone is blowing up. An Art Institute student posters were part of a school project that's become something much bigger. It says the Loch Ness Monster is missing, not a monster. Someone's trying to date the Mothman, and the creature from the Black Lagoon is wanted for fraud. That is, if you believe, a slew of colorful posters popped up around the city. The humorous signs focus on different monsters. One suggests the notice's creature has lost his or her pet, the Loch Ness Monster. Not a monster. Another says the creature from the Black Lagoon is wanted for insurance fraud. But all of the posters ask viewers to send in sightings of and questions about local cryptids. Behind the hotline is Sophie Jones, who's a student at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Jones made the posters as part of a project at the school, but they proved far more popular than she'd imagine 
she's received dozens of phone calls and texts to her cryptid hotline. Now, there's the obvious BS joke ones like the Mothman that like the Mothman called in and wants to take her out on a date. She said, yes, the hotline is partly a joke, but most of the tips her sighting sent to her have been satirical, but she says she's also had a few people call or text with questions about monsters, and she's taking their messages seriously. She's even investigating one report from someone who said they were driving when they hit a creature with glowing eyes. Jones tries to answer people's texts and engage with them in conversations about cryptids. That was always the point of the project. She said, I don't want to let these people down. So who knows, what started as a joke might lead to a couple of possibly real cryptid or UFO or alien sightings. I like this thing. I like this approach. Get people's guard down and you never know what's going to come of it. Up next, the FBI has published its cache of Bigfoot files. The FBI did the FBI did forensic testing to learn if Bigfoot was real, official documents confirm. The story says the FBI has unlocked its Freedom of Information Act vault to reveal what it knows about Bigfoot. Now, according to the newly released files, the feds did analysis of strange hairs of unknown origin for the Bigfoot Information Center and, and Exhibition, or BIC, which is a cryptozoological society devoted to the study of the mythical beast since 1976. Oh, of, in 1976, I apologize. So the, the feds actually did the analysis of these strange hairs for the Bigfoot, Information, the Bigfoot Information Center and Exhibition in 1976. Now, what the feds found wasn't a shock. They said, nope, these hairs came from a deer, not from Bigfoot. But it also has a lot of information about Bigfoot sightings, reports of Sasquatch tracks and sightings in uh, before 1968, since 1968. So like I said, it's a very interesting Freedom of Information Act report. Something I never thought the FBI would ever have cared about, finding out if Bigfoot was real. And yet, they did seem to write back and test some hairs for some people. So unfortunately, this one didn't lead us to Bigfoot is real. But that doesn't mean that Bigfoot isn't real. Just because one sample is of a deer, doesn't mean all samples are fake. And while I was reading the Bigfoot stories, there were a couple of commenters on the news story that posted these. One said, during a joint US-Canada military training exercise I was part of in the early 80s, somewhere near Banff, we were briefed about possible Sasquatch sightings in the very remote areas we were in. We were briefed on how to handle the possible sightings. It says, we were briefed on how to handle possible sightings, how and who to report any evidence and proper protocol for ourselves and if it should and if contact be made. He says it was all very bizarre. Another one said, when I was in the Marine Corps in the mid-70s, our unit went to Fort Lewis, Washington. The instructor said the government had tracking stations looking for Bigfoot. So it seems like our military has been has known about Sasquatch and concerned enough that it's training its people on what to do if they find one or sightings or evidence or anything and who should be contacted. That is way more important to me than the story itself. Hearing from real people about their real encounters or training for cryptids is way more important than some Freedom of Information Act that was released to us. And speaking of Bigfoot, there was a possible Bigfoot sighting reported in Northeast Georgia, according to a Facebook page. It says, within a week's time, there have been two reported sightings in Northeast Georgia of a creature suspected to be the legendary Bigfoot. Details were posted on the Facebook page, Expedition Bigfoot, which is a museum in Cherry Log, Georgia, dedicated to Bigfoot. The first reported sighting of the fabled creature was detailed in a Wednesday, May 22nd post. It says, a driver braked when he saw what he described as a very dark, seven to eight foot tall, hairy, two-legged creature with a pointed head, walking along the shoulder of a road and into the woods around 8.30 p.m. on Monday, May 20th, between Ellijay and Blue Ridge, Georgia. He said the arms were very long and it walked with the arms extended from its sides. He pulled over, skidding on the gravel, and waited on the back side of the small patch of woods, thinking it would emerge on the other side. It never did. It never did 
And when a man approached him with the stick in his hand, asking if he could help him, he said, I just saw what looked like a Bigfoot cross this patch of woods. The stranger just smiled and said, I believe you, and walked away. They also have a couple of descriptions of the Bigfoot, a fairly detailed drawing of the face. It's actually really neat. I'll make sure I put that up on the Facebook page. The page gave an update on Memorial Day, writing a man who saw the, saw the post of the original sighting called to say he saw a black slash gray one in Rabin County near Clayton on his way to work. He says it was walking through a field early a.m. and knelt down at a branch where there are trout present. At this point, he was at his closest to the creature, which was about 50 feet. When the witness moved, he exited his truck to get a better view. The creature saw him and walked back to the woods. This gentleman, like this gentleman, like so many others, was never a believer. Thank you for the call, sir. So again, two sightings real close together, both geographically and in space and time. So something's going on in Georgia. It might just be a Bigfoot. So again, if you listen to this, you live in Northeast Georgia, please go out, try and find Bigfoot. And as always, don't fucking shoot Bigfoot. All right, with that, let's close up paranormal news. Let's get right into this story. So again, I ask you two things about last week's episode or this week's other episode. One, don't at me about it. It's done. It's over. It's not real. And two, let's forget all about that flat earth junk for this episode. Let's get back to the real mysteries, real things that need to be proved. That, plus I'm feeling a little homesick, so let's give Detroit some love while we do it. Now I gotta say, Detroit is not just a cool town on the verge of recovery, but it's a historical place with some amazing old buildings and some crazy haunted locations. And before someone who's listening to this corrects me, yes, these aren't all from Detroit. But Detroit haunted locations sounded way better to me than Michigan haunted locations, so I'm sticking with Detroit haunted locations. Let's jump right in because it's a long list and I want to make sure that you guys hear them all. The first one is the Detroit Public Library. Now, for some reason, a lot of libraries tend to be haunted. And I don't know why. Does it have anything to do with people's love for books and how connected you feel to certain literature? I don't know. Is it because there's so many people in there and it's a warm, comforting place? Like when you go to a library, if you're a book lover and you go to a library, there's something about the smell of the library, the smell of the books, the old books, the feel of old books. Finding a new book and getting it for free, basically, and going home and just getting lost in it Maybe that connects with someone on such a molecular level that when they pass away, they go back to a happy place, which for a lot of people are libraries. Now, again, I don't know, but the Detroit Library has had its share of paranormal experiences. There have been reports of books flying off shelves, and if this sounds familiar, it's because it's just like Ghostbusters. People have also told stories about books rearranging themselves after closing, but... This is where details are important, people, because it doesn't say if the books are found in the wrong place or the right places. Like, are the ghosts following the Dewey Decimal System and correcting it, you know, fixing these books at the end of the night? Or is it just a prankster kind of spirit that's moving books around left and right and leaving them where they know they didn't leave them the night before? I don't know. People have also heard disembodied voices in the library during the day and at night. Now again, no information are the ghosts being loud and being told to be shushed. Are the ghosts shushing people? What are the disembodied voices? What are they saying? These are details I want to know. Now I can tell you it's a beautiful old building that's worth going to, haunted or not. Now this next one on this list I am very familiar with because I used to spend a lot of time in it. I went to college at Wayne State University right there in Detroit. Now. I would never skip classes. Okay, mom? So you know what? You don't even have to listen to the rest of this episode. Thank my mom so much for tuning into this podcast. I don't know who taught you how to use a podcast, but I'm really mad at them because this podcast is not for you. Okay, now that my mom is not listening anymore, I would often skip classes. And between classes, I would head over to the Detroit Institute of Art. It was just a beautiful building. And I mean, architecturally and what they had inside the building. But apparently, if you talk to the security guards and early morning staff, you'll hear a lot of tales of loud noises happening all over the Institute, 
footsteps in the halls when there's nobody there, and the sound of something being dragged through the halls. There's a ton of activity in one particular area, the African Art Gallery. Now, it's specifically a statue nicknamed the Nail Figure. The wooden statue is completely impaled with sharp nails, and according to eyewitnesses, it's been known to move. According to some eyewitnesses, it's been known to dance. Now, I don't know this actual thing. It wasn't there as far as I remember from when I was there 20-something years ago. But they had a lot of amazing old art. And again, just like with books, if you're pouring your heart and soul into this art that you're making, to me anyway, it stands to reason that that's what you're going to be connected to when you move on from this earth. Now, I have a personal, maybe paranormal story about the next location. It's the Bonstell Theater in Detroit. Now, again, since I was in the theater program at Wayne State University, and the Bonstell Theater was part of Wayne State University, I would have to work the plays at the Bonstell, doing behind-the-scenes stagecraft stuff, moving sets and setting up set pieces and everything. But um, just for some quick history, the Bonstell Theater was originally called the Tempo Bethel, and it was built as a synagogue in 1902. It was then purchased by Jesse Bonstell in the 1920s and became a theater. Jesse Bonstell's ghost is said to still haunt the theater to this day. They said her soul was the theater. Now the theater is her soul. Now these sites, these sightings have been going on forever. In fact, that little quote that I just read to you was about her haunting from Detroit Discovery Magazine in 1974. She loved this theater. Now, when I was there, I was told she had an apartment at the top of the theater above the stage. I'm going to say right now, I can't confirm it. I was told that. I saw that. But I don't know if it was an apartment or if it was storage or what it was. I'm just going to tell you the story, how I remember it, and what it was. So again, I was told that she had an apartment at the top of the theater above the stage. Now, the lights in the apartment and the hall or stairwell, whatever you want to call it, the one that goes up to it, would often turn on on their own, and it would be the freshman's job or the newbie's job to run up to the top of the stairs, turn off the lights, and run down a very dark stairwell. So, yeah, that's what happened to me. And it was fun, and sure enough, I personally witnessed the lights come on by themselves. No one was up there or trying to pull a prank on me or any of that BS. I knew exactly where everyone was. They were all doing their lines. They're sitting up for the play. They were running the play. It was getting late at night. So everybody was shuffling out of the play. Since I was backstage, it was my job to kind of button it up and close up everything after all the actors and the director and all those people left. So again, I knew, I knew where everyone was. Sure enough, it's up to me to run up there, turn them off. Now, back then... I was a bit of a wimp, so I got very scared. The lights turned on by themselves, and everybody went, you got to go up there and turn those lights. You can't leave those lights on. you got to go up there. And I had to run up, turn off the lights, now in the pitch black dark, and run down a little stairwell hallway, whatever you want to call it. But if I had the chance now to go there, I would do an investigation in a heartbeat. Now, the reason I said maybe paranormal is I didn't do an investigation back then. To say 100% it was a ghost turning on the lights. Now look, I do know there were no other ways or switches to turn on those lights. I know exactly where those switches were that turned on the lights. There weren't other ones up in the booth or anything like that. I don't know who turned them on, but I didn't do an investigation. So I can't 100% say it was a ghost. But if I had to guess, I want to say, yeah, it was something paranormal. All right, this next one I'm going to talk about doesn't make much sense, so I'm going to call BS on top of it right up front. It's the Majestic Cafe, and it's supposedly haunted by Houdini. Which makes no sense, because the last place that Houdini performed was the Garrick Theater in Detroit, not the Majestic. There's a lot of books that got it wrong. There's a lot of places or people that have been misquoted and they said, oh yeah, Houdini's last place was this theater because it's a theater in Detroit. Houdini's last theater or last performance was a theater in Detroit. Or it was somebody trying to cash in on this was the last place that Houdini was ever seen. You know, something of that BS. 
But if people just did the bare minimum of research, they would know it's the Garrick Theater in Detroit. But again, so many, so many sites have it on their haunted Detroit locations, and again, most of them say it's where Houdini died. It's not. Houdini didn't even die at the Garrick Theater. He died at the hospital after the fact. But let's get back to the story. So the BS rumors are that the strange things started happening in the basement below the theater shortly following Houdini's death. Workers are reported seeing apparitions coming from a set of stairs that have been blocked off with a brick wall for years and hearing faint applause coming from the empty theater. Now again, if it's Houdini they're seeing, I don't buy it. I'm going to call BS on this one. But it could easily be somebody else from that time frame. From the 20s, the 30s, the 10s, the 40s, the 50s. People don't really know what Houdini looks like. So, alright, so you're seeing something, someone coming through a brick wall. An apparition coming through a brick wall. They aren't saying, that's Houdini. I know, I know Houdini is. I've seen him. That's Houdini. He's coming right through that wall. No, they're saying something, an apparition is coming through the brick walls. And they're hearing faint applause. That doesn't add up to one and one makes Houdini. Again, take this one with a grain of salt. I'm sure they're seeing something or hearing something, but it's not Houdini. Okay, up next is the Detroit Masonic Temple and Theater. Again, a huge, beautiful building. But I'm putting this one on the list only to debunk a ton of stupid websites. There are so many things wrong that are written about this building. The first one is this building, the Detroit Masonic Temple and Theater, was built in 1926, not 1912. Like so many websites say, it's very easy to research and get it right. And okay, yes, it's the largest Masonic temple at the time. But no, there aren't thousands of rooms and hidden stairwells and trap doors in the floor. That's just nonsense. It's a good way of saying, see that cool, creepy building? It's a Masonic building. You know those Masons. They had trap doors and hidden stairwells and thousands of rooms in this place. No, they didn't. You can go in this building. No, they didn't. And most importantly, no. George D. Mason did not go broke from the construction and leap to his death from the roof. Again, it's very easy to do the research and debunk this crap. The stories of people seeing his specific ghost climb the stairs up to the roof and jump off only to vanish halfway down? They're just plain dumb and regurgitated from site to site with no research. They all go back to the same specific BS nonsense site about haunted Detroit. Look people, stop spreading this kind of BS. Here's a fun fact about George D. Mason. He went on to live another 20-some years after the construction of the Detroit Masonic Temple and was quite successful and wealthy right up to his death. Alrighty, from that debunked BS, let's move on to the historic Fort Wayne. Now, Fort Wayne is Detroit's third fort ever built. In fact, I want to say I talked about this part of the area, the Rouge River and everything. I did in the Nain Rouge episode. So if you haven't listened to that episode, it's a fantastic episode. It talks about Detroit a little bit as well. But anyhow, back to the Fort Wayne. It was built as a high sand mound with freshwater springs along the waterfront of the Detroit River. And this site is old. I'm talking upwards of 1,000 years old. Roughly 19 Native American burial grounds were present in the immediate area, and as well a larger mound at the mouth of the Rouge River, and stupidly, they built the fort right on top of one of these burial mounds, which, spoiler, never ends well for anybody. In the early 20th century, the sole remaining burial mound at Fort Wayne was excavated by archaeologists from the University of Michigan and was found to contain human remains dating over 900 years old. So, it's old. The grounds are an ancient Native American burial ground. So take a guess what people see. Soldiers? Check. Native Americans? Big old check. The really odd thing, though, is the activity routinely happens at 1.20 a.m. 
Now, this is when the most activity is seen and heard, although visitors during the day also report seeing ghost soldiers and Native Americans and disembodied voices inside the fort during all hours. And employees at the gift shop have reported display items go missing only to return weeks later exactly where they were supposed to be. So, again, not surprising to me that Fort Wayne is having all these instances of paranormal activity because it's built on a thousand-year-old Native American burial mound. Not one, but multiple ones. In case you need this, here's a little tip for you. Don't build anything on Native American burial grounds. Seems pretty easy. Okay, from there, let's head over to the Detroit Puppet Theater. This one is odd because it's not a historical building at all. The theater opened in 1990, and the building is that new too. But, for some reason, it finds its way onto a lot of Detroit's most haunted locations list, because people have seen or heard disembodied voices and footsteps, as well as the smell of pipe tobacco. I have no idea why. I couldn't tell you what was built there, or what was there before it was built. Maybe it's a former owner or a former inhabitant of that area, of that building, of that plot of land. Or maybe one of the puppets is vintage and a spirit is attached to the puppet. But again, only a guess on my part. I have nothing to back that up other than a bunch of Scooby-Doo and Goosebumps episodes. And, you know, basically puppets are generally pretty scary anyway. So I'm going to go with Haunted Puppet. I think it's a safe bet. And that's what I'm going with. Next up is an arts village where local artists live and work. But it used to be something a bit more depressing than a arts village where local artists live and work. It was once known as Jackson State Prison. Now, Jackson State Prison was opened in 1838 and ran for almost 100 years. The guards weren't known for treating the prisoners particularly nicely. In fact, torture seemed to be a very common occurrence. Rumor has it that some cells were just renovated to artist studios. And guess what? Those cells are haunted. Those studios are haunted. They hear disembodied voices, footsteps, screams, blood-curdling screams at night, during the day, randomly. They also hear arguments and noises are heard quite often. Plus, there's a number of cold spots that are always reported. A few artists have even drawn sketches of the fleeting apparitions they've seen wandering the hallways. Now, even though the upper floors have undergone renovation, the underground section that held solitary confinement is structurally intact. It remains as it was back then. Now, the cells have been removed, but it's basically unchanged and spooky as hell. They didn't do anything other than remove the iron bars. So these people living in this cool, funky arts village are living up above solitary confinement for one of the most brutal prisons in Michigan that ran for almost a hundred years. Up next is the Cadu Cafe. Now it was founded in the early 1930s. The cafe is a regular hangout for locals and for one owner's mother. Now the only problem is the owner's mother is dead. Her ghost is often seen sitting at a table or working behind the bar, as well as her husband is sometimes seen in the basement. People have reported seeing a ghost walk through walls and objects moving on their own in the cafe. Up next, the Alhambra Apartments. In 1905, angry after being demoted from cook to scrub woman, Rose Barron got her revenge by slipping arsenic into the biscuits, killing two people. A white apparition has been seen in the hallways, and strange lights appear in the building late at night. Next up, we have Henry Ford Hospital, because back in 1926, a young nursing student jumped to her death from the roof onto the stone courtyard below. Today, a 75-pound lead door to x-ray is found open almost every morning, even though it's been closed every night. Plus, the smell of decay and a constant freezing cold spot fills people with the feeling of dread in one of the boardrooms. This is a hospital. It's been around for a hundred years. I'm not saying it's just this one young nursing student who jumped to her death. People die there all the time. 
And as you know from previous episodes, shadow people are often seen in hospitals, as are other entities lurking about, and the nurses see them on a fairly regular basis. So, again, that one doesn't surprise me at all. Next up is the Crocker House Museum. That was built in 1869 in Mount Clemens. It's a nice-looking old home, which is now a museum, but there are numerous stories of a shadow figure appearing in the windows and even the doorways, scaring guests touring the museum. Now, for some reason, many sites claim that the home embalming happened here, and many people believe that's why it's haunted. But I don't get the connection to that. They did home embalming in a lot of places. Back in the day, if your parent or grandparent or whoever died in the house, they were usually embalmed and stayed in the house for the viewing and the casket and everything. You know, it was all done in the house. So I don't know if that's really the connection for the shadow people in there. As they say, and I don't know who they is, as they say, ghosts usually haunt places they were connected to, not a place their body was preserved for burials. Now, other activities there include cold spots and footsteps and voices as well. So something's going on at the Crocker House Museum, but I don't know what. Next up is the Henry Ford Estate. The Fairlane Estate was built in 1915, and the estate is 1,300 acres, sitting along the Rouge River. It includes a large limestone house, an electrical power plant on the dammed river, a greenhouse, a boathouse, riding stables, children's playhouse, treehouse, extensive landmark gardens, and it's now a museum and very haunted. Windows and doors open and close by themselves and in front of tourists. This is not something like, was that door just open? No, they watch it open and there's nobody behind the door. They see windows open and they can see through the damn window and there's nobody there. Footsteps and apparitions are heard and seen as well as disembodied voices. Plus, the best one yet on this list. At the Henry Ford Estate, there is a ghostly butler who often appears inside the cars on the grounds. So if you go to the Henry Ford Estate, you park your car, you go through there, you see doors and windows and everything else open, and besides a very beautiful estate that's huge, 1,300 acres, but if you start to walk back to your car and you see a butler inside it, you just saw a ghost butler. Okay, up next is the Tuberculosis Sanatorium. Surprise! A Tuberculosis Sanatorium, which is very hard to say, by the way, it's also haunted. Because of course it is. Now, neighborhood residents report hearing tortured screams coming from the building late at night, which are the worst kind of screams, really. If you're going to hear screams, you want to hear screams of ecstasy coming from a ghost, not tortured screams. But again, nearby neighbors say they hear tortured screams coming from the building late at night. So... Again, let me pause right here and say, if there's an abandoned tuberculosis sanatorium in your neighborhood where you heard tortured screams late at night, move. Just fucking move. Leave your crap, move. Leave your children, doesn't matter. You can make more. Move. Don't live with a, tubercul with a tuberculosis sanatorium in your neighborhood. There has to be better houses out there. And if there's not... You don't deserve a house. Burn it down. Leave it. Now, people also see shapes in the windows, seemingly watch people on the street, and thuds and loud noises are heard from within it. Sounds like a terrible neighborhood. I don't want to live there. This next one's got to be good, though, right? It's the Eloise Asylum. The Eloise Asylum opened in 1939. It's about 15 miles outside of Detroit in Westland. Now, originally, it's a farm and poorhouse. The building expanded to 902 acres and 78 different buildings. An asylum, which is 902 acres and 78 different buildings. Now, this led to the development of the asylum and the hospital. There's even a cemetery on the grounds, and patients were routinely treated with lobotomies and electroshock therapy. There are multiple, and I mean tons when I say multiple reports, of paranormal experiences ranging from disembodied moans, screams, sobs, apparitions, footsteps, disembodied voices. You name it, they've seen it there. Alrighty, next up is the Beeson Mansion. Now, this one was built in 1847 by a whiskey distiller 
and purchased thereafter by a local attorney, Strother Beeson, for whom the house is still named to this day. That's why they call it the Beeson Mansion, because of old Strother Beeson. Now, Beeson had an elaborate mausoleum built outside the home for his deceased mother's remains. Beeson might have been a little crazy. Now, as the years went on, the mausoleum filled up with more and more members of the family, including Beeson's own infant grandson. That sucks. Just them, no one else. It's a private cemetery, and it's still there to this day. Now, the cemetery is mainly where the activity takes place. I'm talking moaning, wailing, footsteps. They're heard regularly. Now, this one is still a private residence, though, so don't disturb the living or the dead at the Beeson Mansion. I would like to go to it. I'd like to see it. I'd like to have a tour of the place. And I can't imagine who's living there that have their own private cemetery. That's some Adams Family shit that's cool as hell. Kind of crazy, but cool as hell. Up next is the Henderson Castle, built in 1895. It's a huge 11,000 square foot house on three acres. Now, it's now a bed and breakfast, but it's been a private mansion, property of Kalamazoo College, and an inn. So a lot of people have lived there or been in this building. Now, the basics are heard here as well. Footsteps, whispers, voices, as well as the apparition of the lady of the house, Henderson's wife, Mary. How they know it's her? I don't know. Maybe they saw photo or a painting of her and went, yeah, that's the ghost. Doesn't really say. Unfortunately, again, not a lot of details in some of these. Next up, the Detroit Symphony Orchestra, built in 1887. The Detroit Symphony Orchestra building is believed to be haunted by Russian pianist Osip Gabrilovich, who became the musical director in 1917. Not only have visitors and employees heard unexplained footsteps and voices, high stitch, and voices and felt cold spots, the apparition of Osip or Osip or whatever has been seen backstage and in the offices. Next up is the Two-Way Inn. Now the Two-Way Inn was built in 1876. It was formerly an inn, then a brothel, woohoo, then a general store, then an old jail, and now it's a bar. The past and present owners all have reported seeing a cowboy wandering around who is said to be the original owner Philetus Norris, which again is not a Harry Potter spell. Philetus Norris was the original cowboy owner. Now, Philetus was certainly a colorful character, supposedly, because not only was he a bar owner, but he was also a union spy, an archaeologist, and a superintendent at Yellowstone National Park. This guy sounds like a rockin' dude. Now, witnesses say that his spirit can be recognized by the fact that he still dresses in his signature cowboy styling. Good on him. Way to go, Philetus. Up next is St. Aubin's House. Now, St. Aubin House has a grisly, I guess, claim. A grisly claim to fame. I don't know really what you call it. Um, see, it was the site of a famous murder. In 1929, the severed head of religious cult leader Benny Evangelist was discovered arranged with precision at the feet of his corpse, along with the bodies of his wife and four children. It seems that Benny Evangelist was the leader of a cult who received as much as $10 per reading. Now, he used unorthodox methods to heal both the mentally and physically challenged. How did he heal him? Well, it ranged from basic prayer to black magic to prescribing his, quote, herbal medicine that he mixed himself. Now, his story goes like this. Two years, after rising, two years after arriving in the United States in 1904, Evangelist, who was again an Italian immigrant, claims to have been receiving messages and visions from God. So he published a four-volume Bible called The Oldest History of the World Discovered by Occult Scientists. Nope. The Oldest History of the World Discovered by Occult Science. Because that's a normal thing to name a book. In his basement, Evangelist constructed an odd spiritual sanctuary consisting of wax dolls and figures hung by wires from the ceiling depicting, quote, celestial planets. The basement served as the church for Evangelist sermons, so good luck to whoever went down there. Not surprisingly, he pissed off a bunch of people that paid, that paid him to heal them, and surprise, it didn't do shit. He couldn't heal them. Now, his crime was never solved, 
But the activities today include the apparition of a headless man who has been seen wandering around the upper levels of the house along with the noises of screams, moans, and cries for help. So here we go. This one, I can clearly get why people say, and you know who we're seeing? We're seeing Benny Evangelist. Because how many decapitated people are wandering around that building at some point through time? So again, you see a decapitated guy in this building, a headless guy in this building? It's a damn good chance you're seeing Benny Evangelist. And that name just sounds fake as fuck, too. Sorry, Benny. Finally, we have the Michigan Bell Telephone Building. This is in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Again, I know it's not Detroit. Relax. Cool off. It's still cool, baby. So, the Michigan Bell Telephone Building. This is a fun one, so get ready. There are two ghosts seen here, and they even know their names. It's Warren and Virginia Randall. Because in 1908, Warren met with a, quote, tragic accident and lost his leg in a railroad accident. It was replaced with an artificial wooden one, so things already suck for Warren. This is just the beginning of the story. So Warren, with his one fake leg and one real leg, became strange and paranoid, often accusing his wife of having an affair, having multiple affairs, I apologize, of having affairs, and he became more and more violent. Local police regularly went to the Randalls' house to break up their fights. Later that year, Warren was even arrested while chasing his wife down an alley with a straight razor. Now, Virginia didn't press charges, but later that summer, she finally left him. So, Warren... Bit crazy, one-legged, artificial leg, chasing after her down an alley with a straight razor. Virginia says, nope, screw that. I'm leaving. So from there, let's go to 1910. That's in two years, from 1908 when he lost his leg, to now, 1910. Warren coaxed Virginia into taking a buggy ride with him. Some say he hoped to convince her to come back with him, but no one really knows for sure. What we do know is they ended up at the Judd White House, not the Judd White House, it's called Judd White, and it's a house. And had one of the last fights there where Warren took off his wooden leg and beat Virginia with it. He knocked her senseless and then proceeded to seal every opening and every crevice of the room with towels. He ripped a gas fixture from the wall. Then when that didn't do the trick fast enough, it said that he took out a straight razor, slashed his throat with it. So again, let's jump ahead two weeks later, two weeks after that, when the office building next door started to notice a bad smell coming from the Judd White House, which was abandoned. Guess what they found? So several board members from the Board of Health and an employee from the local gas company broke open the doors to smell not only the gas, but two dead bodies. For whatever reason, the Judd White House remained abandoned Gee, wonder why. And it was eventually bought out by the telephone company who demolished the building and built the Michigan Bell Telephone Company on the land. So, what do they hear? Well, they hear a very specific argument. They hear Virginia herself screaming and begging for her life. And also, one more thing they hear is the sound of Warren's wooden leg thumping as he walks through the hallways. Also, the sound of something bashing someone to death. In 2013, the building was turned into a homeless shelter because, you know, those people haven't had it bad enough. I mean, guess what? To this day, they hear arguments, Virginia screaming and begging for her life, and a wooden leg thumping through the halls. Well, that about does it for Detroit. Honestly, it's a really lovely place. Would I recommend you living in the Judd, former location of the Judd White Michigan Bell Telephone Company house, land, building, whatever you want to call it? No. Sounds like Virginia's still reliving it. Hopefully it's going on in a loop and not she's reliving it all the time. But sounds like Warren and Virginia still live there. Sadly, still together. Everybody should visit Detroit, though. If, even if you don't like the paranormal... You should visit Detroit. The cesspool rumors are just that. They're rumors. Detroit had a bad shake. But it's coming back. It's coming back strong. 
It's got a lot of beautiful houses, a lot of beautiful architecture. If you're into architecture, it's very beautiful. It's a great place to visit, and I think everybody should. It's incredibly nice. So what do you guys think? Did any of these stories sound familiar to you? The reason I'm asking you is this is, I don't know if it's because I did so much research and then this story kind of, or this episode kind of just kept getting pushed to the side and pushed to the side and pushed to the side. But I had to go through the list of all of my episodes to make sure I didn't do a Detroit Most Haunted episode before. Because that's how familiar it sounded to me. I went, did I do this one? It's not, I'm, I'm not even to 100 episodes yet and I'm already losing. Have I done this? Have I not? I don't think I have. I hope I haven't. And if I haven't, or if I have, well, I hope you like this one as much as you like the first one. But I really don't think I did. I don't think I actually ever did this episode. I think it was always just been sitting there as my go-to, one day I'm going to get to this episode. And I need to polish it a little bit, which is what I did this week, because of that other episode that shall not be named. But anyhow, what do you guys think? Do you guys have a list of the most haunted locations in your town? Are they real? Are they bullshit? Are you going to send them to me? Because I want to see them. Send me the list of the most haunted locations in your in your area. Even if it's only like one or two places. Like, you know, oh, I always heard that this library was always haunted. Send them to me. I want to hear about them. If you got a full list, even better. If you got personal stories, even better. Because as always, personal stories trump just about everything for me. I love hearing directly from you guys what you've seen, what you heard, what you felt, everything. Again, I hope you really enjoyed this episode. I hope you liked that other episode this week, too. I like to mix it up, which is exactly what I did this week. But to make it up for you, here's that good paranormal one that I was telling you about, and I hope you enjoyed it. Once again, I'm your host, Kurt Sandig, and this has been another special edition of Paranormal Almanac. Edwin, it is swoops, your she's still a god of me, this car, your she's still a gummy. It is swoops, your she's a car, the mouth, you're she's still a god of me, this car, your she's still a gummy.